we can start. Okay, so for, I've changed the syllabus a little bit, and I'll put that on the, uh, I'll send you an email um, on Latte. Not really much, just a ton more reading, so that should be fine, right? Um, oh, man, are you guys, is this the paper? Is it the weather? Is it that you were all arrested by the Brandeis police and you think it was unfair? Um, <laughs> is it the election? Were you still hoping that the Tea Party would win everything on Tuesday? Is it Dr. Johnson's applicability to our current situation? Um, what? But it's half our classes almost have been on Fridays. It's crazy week. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, let me just tell you what to do with your just your crazy weekend. You can really go wild this weekend reading Thomas and Collins. Um, <laughs> I mean, not Thomas Thompson. I don't know what. It's, yeah, it's been a crazy week. Um, Thompson and Collins uh, for um, Tuesday. Um, the Thompson and Collins to read are, you should be reading both for them, and there's overlap in this. You should be reading um, both in the Lonsdale Anthology and in the, um, the Price and um, Trap Anthology, so both in, in both Oxfords. Um, it's not that much reading, um, but you should read, uh, just read through their poetry in both. Then for next Friday, again in both, I unaccountably, well, maybe not unaccountably, that will be for you to decide. Maybe it was wise of me, but my wisdom has, has dissipated and vanished into air. Um, left out young. Um, so for a week from Friday, a week from today, which will, I'm sorry, Leah, also be a Friday, um, you should be reading um, Gray and Young. Um, this, again, there's selections from Night Thoughts. There, um, I think there's overlap, but basically there are a couple of selections from Night Thoughts um, by Young in both um, Oxfords. Um, and then the, the other thing that I um, unaccountably left out was um, Cooper, spelt with a W. Um, you might think Cowper, but you would be wrong. Um, and so that will be for November 19th. We're going to read... Um, Goldsmith and Cooper, not just Go um, Goldsmith. So I will, um, I'll reiterate this on Latte, but just so you know, um, you don't have to worry that there's less reading than you're happy doing in this class. Um, I think that just doesn't have to be a worry of yours anymore. It doesn't have to keep you up nights any longer. In fact, you'll probably sleep better because you won't have those worries. You'll get more sleep now that there's more reading. Because the reader's threatened, not in vain with. All right, one person. <laughs> one person, that is great. Um, okay, and let's see, sh should I say anything about the papers? Yeah, what I'll say is if you, um, you know, I don't like to use salty language. So if you messed up, if you didn't do as well as you were hoping on your first paper, if um, the lower letters of the alphabet are important to you, um, the higher letters, it's like the upper and outer cape, the, the, the firster letters, the letters closer to A, the letters closer to the beginning letters of the alphabet, if they're important to you, um, if positivity rather than negativity is important to you, things like that. Um, you, if you do better on the second paper, I will count it a lot more. Um, 
that is, if you uh, if you wrote a crappy first paper but you redeem yourself on the second paper, we know from all the moralistic um, poetry that we're reading that you can't redeem yourself entirely. This isn't given to us. Um, but you can redeem yourself partially. This is given to us. Um, so I'll basically, if the, if the second paper is better than the first, um, I'll count it as worth twice as much as the first. Um, if the first is better than the second, I'll count them equally. Um, so don't think that your better paper will be counted twice as much as your worst. Don't think, oh, I got a B on my first paper. I don't have to worry about the second one. Um, you still do. Um, but if you're, I'll, because I will count them equally if, if you do worse on your second. But if your second is better than your first, then improvement will count a lot. Um, and I'll count it as being um, worth two-thirds of your paper grade, the paper grade components in this course, and the first paper is one-third. Um, and then, you know, of course, you'll want to ace the exam as well. Um, so I guess, I guess that's sort of what I want to say. None of you wrote in heroic couplets. That was a pity. Um, or maybe not such a pity, actually, now that I think of it. <laughs> now, now that I stupidly made that joke, I saw some eyes just starting to light up. Um, if we tried, would we have to, when we cited things, make it so that we would have to cite them also within In heroic the couplets? I, w I think so, although, you know, Pope doesn't. So you can, you can use Pope or Dryden as your examples. But um, there are, I actually once started um, a chapter on footnotes in poetry. Um, and Vikram Sait, do people know who he is? Um, so he wrote this book called Golden Gate, which is a novel in sonnets. Um, and uh, you may know his name is Vikram Seth. You may be mispronouncing his last name because it's spelled S-E-T-H. He was actually a student of Harry Merson's, if you know who he is, in the computer science department here. So when Harry was a grad student at Stanford, Vikram Sait took a course from him. And he was writing Golden Gate, which is a novel in Pushkin sonnets, that is in octosyllabic sonnets of the form that Pushkin wrote um, Eugene Onyegin in. Um, he wrote a novel based in San Francisco um, called Golden Gate, and you're supposed to look at the title and the, and the title page, and it's, Vikram, it's Golden Gate by Vikram Sait. And um, the table of contents, the novel is in 14 chapters, and if you read the table of contents, they form a sonnet, a rhymed sonnet, and everything in the book is a rhymed sonnet, including a couple footnotes in the book. Um, so it, it's always an interesting th thing to do to assimilate footnotes to the form that they're footnoting. Um, some poets do, some don't, but yeah. Yes, yeah, cite in heroic couplets. You should cite in couplets for the couplets came. Illusion. I cite in couplets for the couplets came. I rhymed in, I lisped in numbers. Oh, what would that be? Who? Pope, yes. Um... Good. All right. Um, I told you guys to read London today, and I had stupidly not realized or forgotten that the whole of London is hardly in either of these anthologies. So I assume you just read the, the little bit in here, which is fine. Um, what I just want to tell you a little bit about Johnson, maybe a good way of doing it. You've been reading tons and tons of Johnson's prose, 
um, and loving it, I can tell, because you're quoting it all the time. Um, I can hear that Johnsonian cadence in everything that you say, which is, which is just, just great. Um, John, the one of the things that you have, so what, what I um, distributed were two bits of Johnson. Um, the second one is a letter that he wrote to Lord Chesterfield. And uh, Chesterfield was someone, Johnson, I mentioned this before um, many a time, but I'll mention it again. Um, Johnson was the, um, basically the first person to do a serious unabridged dictionary um, of any language. Um, that is a, a, an unabridged dictionary, or it's not, obviously it's not unabridged, but he didn't abridge it. Um, um, a dictionary in a language where the definitions and the words defined, the lexical entries, are in the same language. Um, obviously, there are dictionaries before this, um, but those dictionaries are all specialized in certain ways. That is, the, they're dictionaries of hard or obscure or technical terms. What Johnson had the idea of doing um, and he then got the nickname Dictionary Johnson. Back in the 18th century, people would, um, there weren't a lot of English names, so the way you would um, talk about famous people is you would give them a nickname. Um, the gardener Brown was known as Capability Brown because he was very capable in his making of gardens. Johnson was known as Dictionary Johnson, and that was the thing he was most famous for, was his Dictionary of the English Language. Um, and it is the basis and source of um, Webster's and um, the Oxford English Dictionary and um, all, and ultimately Encarta and the American Heritage Dictionary. All the, you guys don't know what Encarta is, but um, all the, um, all the, all the unabridged dictionaries to follow. Um, and Johnson's idea was that a dictionary within a language of the language would be helpful to people for whom English was not their first language. That is, that they could look up um, words, learn English. If you, you're taking French, you probably, have you gotten to the point where you're using like La Russe de Poche? No? So you really make a huge stride in a language when you use a dictionary that's entirely in that language. Um, it's a very, very good thing to do. Is you still need a dictionary, but you're reading the definitions in the original language, too. Um, Johnson's idea was that his dictionary of the English language would do that. Um, however, it quickly took on a life of its own, and as I mentioned before, um, the hardest to understand definitions are the definitions of the easiest words, um, like net. Did you look it up? Oh, no, I just remember you talking yeah, about Yeah, right, yes, even reticulations. Well, I guess, can, can you look it up? Just look up, you know, Dr. Johnson and net and reticulation and put Dr. Johnson in quotation marks, but you have better Google food than I do. Um, so um, this for him was a single-handed labor, um, and it took him eight years. He did it in a garret in um, London. You can still go there. Um, it's basically an at the attic of his house. It's, uh, he had papers spread all over the place and a long table, and he worked on it for eight years and published it. It was a huge success. Um, and um, it's an unbelievable thing for one person to do. Um, the Oxford English Dictionary, which is admittedly much longer, but the Oxford English Dictionary's first edition took, I think, 60 years um, and um, hundreds of people to do. Um, the most interesting of those hundreds of people being um, 
a person in an asylum for the criminally insane um, who maybe kind of like Elizabeth Salander was also, he'd murdered someone, um, but he was also very interesting. Um, and uh, he would just um, come up with words in his reading and definition, proposed definitions, which he would send to the general editor of the Oxford English Dictionary, who just thought they were great. And he did hundreds of those. And one day the general editor, a guy named uh, Simon, Simon Winchester, um, wrote him a letter saying, you know, we should, I know you, I, I see from your address that you're not actually very far from Oxford. Maybe you would like to come to lunch. And he said, I would love to come to lunch. Unfortunately, I'm confined to this institution for the criminally insane. Um, so they didn't have lunch. But I think Winchester did eventually go meet him. Um, so dictionary makers are, um, uh, they're always colorful, much more colorful than Shakespeare editors, although Johnson did both. Um, Johnson's definition of lexicographer in his dictionary is a harmless drudge. Um, so, um, and Johnson also, he's, he was the first person to use illustrative quotations. So when you look up something in an unabridged dictionary and it gives you an illustrative quotation for how the word is used, Johnson was really the first person to do that. So one of the great things about his dictionary is it's also a kind of anthology of memorable lines. Um, lots of Shakespeare in his dictionary, lots of 18th century poets. Partly because, as you know from reading his Lives of the Poets, um, he is um, reading a lot of poets in order to write their biographies. Did you find it? All I keep getting are blogs, like WordPress blogs. And I don't, I'm not getting like any site with his dictionary. Oh, because of net. That's a really hard thing to look up on, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Because um, if you look up net on the net, what do you get? Do you guys know about uh, that cook source thing that happened yesterday? Oh, really? Isn't that funny um, that you don't know? And you don't even know that it's funny that you don't know. Um, <laughs> are you looking it up? Um, a friend of mine on LiveJournal who's a novelist uh, got a letter from a friend of his saying that um, something she blogged about, which was... Um, uh, a medieval recipe for apple pie or something. Cook Source Magazine, which is a free giveaway rag in Western Massachusetts, had published with her name but without asking her and without payment. So she asked him what to do and he kind of asked his LJ friends and um, he said that what he told her is that she should just ask for a hundred bucks. So she did. Um, and she got this unbelievably um, snarky letter back from the editor of the magazine saying, I cleaned up your prose, which sucked. You should be paying me for having done that. The internet is public domain, as you probably don't know. And she didn't know it because you can't know something that's not true. Um, <laughs> and um, and um, but because I'm a nice person, I've done this for free. Plus, feel free to use um, that copy of Cook Source magazine as a um, as part of your portfolio. Bye now. Um, and so she complained to this LJ friend who then posted it, and it went viral. And um, Neil Gaiman picked it up um, and tweeted about this plagiarism. Um, and um, everyone directed um, everyone else to Cook Source Magazine's Facebook page, um, where there are now some something like 100,000 really vicious comments that would make Rochester blush. Um, <laughs> And it, it's also been, did you find Cook Source? 
there are a lot of news articles about it. No, you don't have to find it. I just figured that's what you're doing since your your eyes lit up in a way that they did not light up when I suggested heroic couplet. Um, okay, Dr. Johnson, reticulation. Um, net, yeah, net. Oh, God, there's a jump. Ah, oh, you found it? Yeah. All right. Um, Go for it. And if they reticulate your decapitated at equal distances with interstices between the intersections. Okay, got that. And you define reticulated, which is made of network formed with interstitial vacuities. Okay, interstitial vacuities. There would be a great title, for really for anything. <laughs> interstitial, what? I'm going to name my kids that. Yes, good. Yes, yes. It would be a great rock band name, too. <laughs> Dr. Johnson and the Interstitial Vacuities. Um, good. Interstitial Vacuities, My Life at Brandeis. Okay. Uh, all right, so read the, read the definition of that again. Anything reticulated or decustated at equal distances with interstices between the intersections. Okay, that's not bad. So this is what he spent eight years doing. <laughs> Um, he also, one of, a lot of the definitions, mostly the definitions are really serious. Some of them are sort of hyper, over-the-top, parodic serious like that one. Um, if you don't know what net means, you're not going to understand that definition. Um, and, um, but, and some of them are just pure funny, like his definition of oats is, I think I told you this one, in, in England, um, in Scotland, food for men, in England, food for horses. Um, so anyhow, Johnson's Dictionary is, is a great thing. Um, he had gone, this letter is self-explanatory that we're about to look at, but it's his very famous letter to Lord Chesterfield. Um, and the letter, uh, what happened was Chesterfield, ha once Johnson finished with the dictionary, um, what will happen is that aristocrats um, want to get credit for um, supporting, you know, like the like the Koch brothers supporting the um, Metropolitan Museum of Art, they want to get credit for their good works by supporting the hard work of literary types. Um, and then what what you do if you're a writer is you is you get a patron, the patron supports you, gives you some money, um, uh, helps you to get along, and then you write a letter of gratitude on um, at, at the beginning of your work. And everyone knows that it's like, you know, it's like naming Usdan Usdan um, or the Mandel Humanity Center, the Mandel Humanity Center. It would be the Lord Chesterfield Johnson's Dictionary, um, T the TD Bank North Johnson's Dictionary. Um, so Johnson went to Chesterfield basically when he was a nobody, when he started it, um, and Chesterfield wasn't that interested. Um, but now he produced this unbelievable piece of work, and Chesterfield offered to be his patron. Um, Chesterfield is an interesting person in his own right, just so you know. His, he's famous for um, the letters that he wrote to his son, um, of which, do you remember the most famous sentence in those letters? Um, he's recommending against, I'm not going to be able to quote it exactly, which is why I asked you. He's recommending um, um, abstinence to his son before marriage, um, and he describes sex to his son as, um, uh, oh God, what is it? Um, oh, I can only get two out of the three. Um, it's, it's, oh, the pleasure momentary. 
the position ridiculous and the cost damnable. Um, so that, <laughs> that's his... That's his sixth word, um, why you should avoid getting entangled with women before you get married. Um, but at any rate, so Johnson writes him this letter, my lord, when Chesterfield offers to be a patron, my lord, Johnson writes, I have been lately informed by the proprietor of the world, the world being um, a, a journal, that two papers in which my dictionary is recommended to the public were written by your lordship. So Chesterfield, who's a good writer, basically said, yay, Johnson's dictionary is great. To be so distinguished is an honor which, being very little accustomed to favors from the great, I know not well how to receive or in what terms to acknowledge. So it was really nice of you to write this about me. I'm really not used to important people doing anything for me. That's my experience, is that I don't get favors from important people. Um, I'm not used to them. And then he explains, when, upon some slight encouragement, I first visited your lordship, I was overpowered, like the rest of mankind, by the enchantment of your address, and could not forbear to wish that I might boast myself. You want to say it? Can you read it aloud? What? I'm sorry. That's okay. Look at, the, look at Johnson's letter. My lord, second paragraph, bottom of the page. Oh, you can get to practice your French. Yeah, so the, the conqueror of the conqueror of the world. Um, so I could not forbear to wish I might boast myself the vainqueur du vainqueur de la terre, that I might obtain that regard for which I saw the world contending. So I was hoping that you would give me um, the, the, um, the um, um, recognition that the whole world wanted from you, but I found my attendance so little encouraged that neither pride nor modesty would suffer me to continue it. Um, one reason that I wanted you to <coughs> excuse me, read this letter, but read Johnson in general, is that Johnson does in prose what mainly we've been seeing done in poetry, which is Johnson is the great master of the antithetical style. Um, of a style in which um, two things are balanced against each other, and that balancing itself covers, um, somehow comes to the same result either way and covers all bases. Um, a famous sentence in Rasselas, for example, is, and this is typical of Johnson, um, that if um, marriage has few, ha if marriage has great pain, celibacy has no pleasures. Um, so, you have two choices, marriage or not getting married, and they're both bad. Um, and he says this in a perfectly balanced sentence. Um, his antithetical style is always a heads-I-win, tails-you-lose antithetical style. That is, you have two things that are balanced against each other. Um, they seem to be mirror images of each other. They seem to go um, off to give you a fork in the road. But um, as they say, if you see a fork in the road, take it, because, it will, because Johnson's forks in the road always take you to the same place, which is really despair. Um, so um, here he says, I found my attendance so little encouraged that neither pride, if I was, I was you, you were insulting me. My pride couldn't allow me, couldn't suffer me to continue um, waiting upon your lordship, nor modesty. 
That is, um, I was modest enough now to think that I would be being immodest by continuing to wait on your lordship. Is your hand up? No. Um, so that's typical of Johnson, that neither pride nor modesty would suffer me to continue it. Um, it would be an insult to my pride, and it would be um, a ridiculously immodest thing for me to do to continue my courtship. When I had once addressed your lordship in public, I had exhausted, excuse me, when I had once addressed your lordship in public, I had exhausted all the power, all the art of pleasing which a retired and uncourtly scholar can possess. Um, that would be him, a retired and uncourtly scholar. Um, physically, he was um, opposite to Pope. He was huge and, um, and uh, really a gigantic presence in whatever room he entered. Um, but he, he, like Pope, had had a bunch of very difficult um, physical ailments, and he was um, partly deaf and partly blind, and he also probably had Tourette's syndrome. So he was a kind of um, people thought of, people thought of him as um, bear-like, and enough so that when his biographer James Boswell um, was walking with him one day um, in London. Someone said to Boswell, oh, I see you've brought your bear. Um, and um, so he really was uncourtly. So there, people suspected that he had Tourette? Yes. Oh, did, did he just like, twitch or did he... Um, he, he twitched. He twitched and, and um, was, was always doing just weirdo things with, weirdo with his body. Yeah, I mean, everyone remarked on it. But he was just such a, such a genius and, and such an amazing talker. Um, that everyone um, uh, just found him completely charismatic and spellbinding. Um, so I had exhausted all the art of pleasing which a retired uncourtly, except Chesterfield. Um, I had exhausted all the art of pleasing which a retired uncourtly scholar can possess. I had done all that I could, and no man is well pleased to have his all neglected, be it ever so little. Seven years, my lord, have now passed since I waited in your outward rooms or was repulsed from your door. Um, so seven years ago, I waited for you and was finally sent away, during which time I've been pushing on my work through difficulties, and here's another great antithetical sentence, pushing on my work through difficulties, of which it is useless to complain. I'm sorry, this is not one I thought it was. Um, difficulties of which it is used to complain, useless to complain, and have brought it at last to the verge of publication, without one act of assistance, one word of encouragement, or one smile of favor. Such treatments I did not expect, for I never had a patron before. Um, so notice, notice the, um, the, the, the sharp, poisonous wit of that line. Um, if you go to the Vanity of Human Wishes, um, line uh, 160, you don't have to go there, I'll just read you this part. Um, uh, so he's talking about um, the, co the college student who's looking forward to grad school, um, and um, he's recommending against that, as he recommends against everything that you could possibly do with your life. You don't want him as your advisor. Um, and um, he says, well, even should no disease thy torpid veins invade, nor melancholy's phantoms haunt thy shade, yet hope not life from grief or danger free, nor think the doom of man reversed for thee. 
deign on the passing world to turn thine eyes and pause a while from letters to be wise. Take a year off, in other words. There, mark what ills the scholar's life assail. Toil, envy, want, the garret and the jail. That is, living in a garret and doing nothing. So after um, Lord Chesterfield had treated him badly, when he reprinted this poem, he turned that line, toil, envy, want, the garret and the jail, to toil, envy, want, the patron and the jail. So if you're a scholar, you're going to have to deal with these things. Toil, envy, want, patrons, the jail. Um, so, yes, I didn't know that I would be treated this way because I never had a patron before. Then this very famous sentence. Do any of you know who John Crowley is, the great fantasy writer? Um, so if you're looking for an incredibly great fantasy novel, Little Big, Little Comma Big, um, is really one of the great fantasy novels of the second half of the 20th century. Um, John Crowley, uh, now in his 60s, I think. Um, amazing writer. Anyhow, he quotes this part as an epigraph, this, this great line. The shepherd in Virgil grew at last acquainted with love and found him a native of the rocks. Um, this refers to something in the eclogues where a shepherd is looking for love, eros, love, the um, god, and finds that he lives among the sharpest and most terrible rocks. But that's a great line. The shepherd in Virgil grew at last acquainted with love and found him a native of the rocks. Is not a patron, my lord, one who looks with unconcern on a man struggling for life in the water, and when he has reached ground, encumbers him with help? Um, so that's probably the most famous sentence in the letter. Um, encumbers him with help. The notice which you have been pleased to take of my labors, had it been early, had been kind, and now we get the antithetical moment. So if it had been early, it would have been kind of you. But it has been delayed till I am indifferent and cannot enjoy it. Till I am solitary, his wife has died, and cannot impart it. Till I am known and do not want it. I hope it is no very cynical asperity not to confess obligations, which he would do if he wrote a letter of um, thanks to the patron. I hope it is no very cynical asperity not to confess obligations where no benefit has been received or to be unwilling that the public should consider me as owing that to a patron, which providence has enabled me to do for myself. Having carried on my work thus far with so little obligation to any favorer of learning, I shall not be disappointed, though I should conclude it, if less be possible, with less. So I'd be very glad to have even less obligation to others, if it's possible to have less, than I do now. For I've been, for I've been long awakened from that dream of hope, very Johnsonian idea, the dream of hope. For I've been long awakened from that dream of hope in which I once boasted myself with so much exultation, my Lord, your Lordship's most humble, most obedient servant, Samuel Johnson. So again, this is, um, uh, just so you know this, this is a typical and beautiful 
example of the 18th century style of signing letters. Um, it's pre-18th century also, but it was brought to a real art in the 18th century, the art of signatures, which is when you say, very truly yours, blah, 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 um, sometimes you will see the, the letters and I remain very truly yours, I remain sincerely yours, um, I remain your obedient servant. And that, the very truly yours or best or all best or whatever, is a relic of the end of a letter which would usually end with a sentence. And the last words of the sentence would be the name of the writer of the letter. So um, thus ends the letter of, um, of him who is proud to be able to say that he is now and will ever be very truly yours, Mortimer Snurd. Um, so Johnson is doing that. If you just glance at the letter, what you see is, my lord, your lordship's most humble, most obedient servant, Samuel Johnson. If you're Chesterfield and glance at the letter, you think, okay, a little, a little much on the salutation, but nice. Um, obviously, this is a nice letter that Sam has sent. Um, but then if you read the whole sentence, it's, I have long wakened from the dream of hope in which I once boasted myself with so much exultation my lord, your lordship's humble, most obedient servant, Sam Johnson. So I once thought of myself as your most obedient servant. And what's really crucial there, of course, is the word once, which means that the whole last four lines are false. Um, if you just take them out of context, he's saying, and here's what's no longer true. Here's what I no longer think of myself as. Um, so this, I think this letter is a masterpiece of the genre. The genre, just so you know, because you really need to learn something in this class, is a genre called the fuck you letter. Um, and there's a great one. Do you guys know A River Runs Through It, Norman MacLean? Uh No, really? You're not Brad Pitt fans? You don't like spend every waking moment watching Brad Pitt? Eternal Sunshine of the Spot? No, that's not Brad Pitt. No. <laughs> um, I think A River Runs Through It was the movie that made him famous. Um, it's directed by Robert Redford. No, it's not. What made him famous? Was that before A River Runs Through It? Okay. Well, A River Runs Through It was important. How's that? Um, and it was a real bestseller. It's by Norman MacLean, um, and uh, he published it in his 60s. It was his first book. He published it in his 60s. And then he wrote another book, which is um, an even better book called Young Man and Fire. But A River Runs Through It, he, Alfred Knopf was supposed to publish it, and they were just about to publish it when Mr. Knopf himself vetoed it. And then, he, and then it was this gigantic bestseller when the University of Chicago Press published it instead. And then um, he wrote this other book, and his agent got him a contract from Knopf. And um, he um, was about to publish a book with them, and then he realized suddenly, he was old, he was in his 80s, he realized suddenly, wait, this is Knopf. And then he... So his letter to them, which you can look up on the web, just look up Norman McLean's fuck you letter. Um, but his letter to them basically says, I find that I have done myself a very great disservice. Um, no doubt some of the finest fuck you prose of English literature um, has been written, um, fantasized by um, rejected authors who imagine that the publishers who have rejected them will one day see the error of their ways and come to their door. And here... You've done just that, um, and I didn't get a chance to write to write that letter. Um, I wish I could get it perfectly, but then he is. 
Um, so I guess I'll have to content myself with with saying that um, if only that if you did you find it if if you were the last publisher in the world or if you found it no. See, it's, it, this is the survival of the 18th century. Um, if you were the last publisher in the world and I were the last author, then the world would have to reconcile itself to having no more books. Um, that's, how, that's how he ends it. Okay, so, one, yes? Who, would, uh, who was the publisher of this, the fucker or the fucky? Oh, who, um, I think Boswell was the first person to report it. Um, but I'm not certain how it got published. That's a good question. Um, do you know? No, I'm not certain how it got published. But Boswell's Life of Johnson, some of you may have heard of, is um, the is the greatest literary biography in the world. Um, Boswell, who is this young um, Scotsman who was very not shy, um, the opposite of shy. He was a young lawyer. Um, and he loved Johnson, who was, I think, like 30 years older than he was. Um, and uh, he wanted to go to London and hang out with Johnson and have sex with anything that moved. Um, and he did. That's what he did. Um, and so he went to meet Johnson, and he got Johnson to um, essentially let him hang out with him all the time. And he said, Johnson, why do you want to do it? He said, well, I want to write your biography. And what he did was he took down... Um, Johnson's conversation, his journals are, are, are many volumes long, and they're filled with Johnson's day-to-day -day conversation, um, which he uses the basis for the biography, The Life of Johnson, which is um, for a while, wrongly, but for a while was considered a greater work than anything Johnson himself had written. Um, so it's this amazing, unbelievably um, absorbing, page-turning, 800-page biography. Um, where he's basically just reporting what Johnson said every day. Um, and Johnson's hilarious um, and charismatic and wonderful. Um, and um, so we know more about Johnson than about practically anyone of the time because we do have this, this incredible record. Not by him, that is, it's not someone writing in a diary. We have Johnson's diaries also. Um, but it's not someone writing in a diary saying, yes, today I prayed to God um, to give me the light that I lacked. Um, but we had Boswell just taking down um, his, his everyday witticisms and, and complaints and so on. And Boswell was, was, was always needling Johnson. It's not, he wasn't looking at Johnson with awe. He felt awe, but also affection. And they teased each other. Boswell was always teasing Johnson. And Johnson, partly because Johnson's response to teasing was so wonderful. Um, which, is a, which is he would just say these amazing things on any provocation that Boswell gave him, and then Boswell wrote them down. So um, a whole lot of what we know that Johnson said um, comes from Boswell. Um, and Johnson, Boswell's Johnson is quite an amazing character, quite a wonderful character. Um, okay, one reason that I wanted to talk about the dictionary is the other thing on this sheet um, and I mentioned this to you before also, is um, what Johnson wrote in an album to Mrs. Thrale. Um, so he got to a party at her house um, and discovered that it was her birthday and that she was supposedly 35. Um, she was actually about as 35 as Stella was 34 in Swift's poem, which is to say not. Um, and you're supposed to write a complimentary poem, especially if it's someone's birthday. So he wrote this extempore, oft in danger, yet alive, 
we are come to 35. Long may better years arrive, better years than 35. Could philosophers contrive life to stop at 35? Time his hours should never drive or the bounds of 35. So he knows she's older. Um, if you could stop counting at 35, time would never go beyond 35. Um, high to soar and deep to dive, nature gives at 35. Ladies, stock and tend your hive, trifle not at 35, for howe'er we boast and strive, life declines from 35. He that ever hopes to thrive must begin by 35. So you guys have time. And we all have time. And all who wisely wish to wive must look on thrail at 35. Um, and then what Johnson said about this, after people, were, people were amazed by this extempore um, poem. He just sat and wrote it. And what he said about it was, um, now you can see what seven years doing a dictionary will do to me because the verses are in alphabetical order. Um, they're not exactly in alphabetical order, but... Um, but close enough. So you can see that he's, um, this is almost oral poetry. He's thinking about the rhymes as he writes. And of course, he's doing what you do. Um, we talked about this before, um, thinking about the rhymes alphabetically, um, going from A to Z. And he gets all the way to W. Um, no zive, no yive, no xive. So he stops at wive. Um, so that all works. Um, Johnson is, there more anecdotes about Johnson, really, than about anyone. Um, okay, this I wanted to give you, I mean, you know some of this from the lives of the poets, but I wanted to give you a different um, uh, side of Johnson from what uh, you will see or what you have seen in London and the Vanity of Human Wishes. Um, so, what do you think of the Vanity of Human Wishes? Depressing. Depressing. <laughs> you think, Why? From the title on. From the title on, yes. Um, I guess, do people know about his writing of this? Um, I think they don't say this in the head note. Um, so, so one of the interesting things about the Vanity Human, which is Johnson said this, and it seems to be true, is that he, he basically composed the first 80 lines or so in his head. Um, he suddenly got the idea of, of um, imitating the satire of, Ju of juveniles. Um, and uh, he composed them in his head, and then he thought, well, I better write this down. Um, and his verbal memory was basically photographic. Um, so he had the first 80 lines in his head, and he wrote them down. Um, but he wanted to get them down quickly. Um, so he decided that all he really had to do was write the first half of each line down. Um, and then he'd remember the second half. Um, and so he wrote the first half of the first 80 lines down without writing. That was his way of doing shorthand, is <laughs> to write a half a line, assuming the next half would um, just work out fine. Um, and we know he did this because if you look at the manuscript, the second half is in a different ink from the first half of the lines. Um, so he told this story, and people thought, oh, yeah, that's a great story, sure. Um, but after his death, it turned out to be true. Um, so, um, again, that's, that's a fact about his prodigious um, memory and knowledge and, and literary power. Um, okay, depressing. What else? 
helpful. Yeah, Liz. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um partly I think it might be because of all the um er allegorical abstractions in it. That is all the capital letter words um like uh are they not capitalized? Words like vice and um, renown. No, I guess they're not capitalized. Um, but the fever of renown. Oh, yeah, praise, difficulty, sloth, novelty, beauty, disease. Um, they're all bad. <laughs> praise, difficulty, sloth, novelty, beauty, and disease. They're all equally bad. Um, that's part of what's depressing about the poem. Um, but it means that, yeah, it's often very, very abstract. That is, you don't get the, um, the, 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 the sharp and, and um, pungent illustrations that you'll often get in Swift when he's being grim um, or Pope when he's, when he's being, um, uh, when he's attacking people or Dryden. Um, what would what would you most compare this to? To yeah, Steve. Oh, essay on criticism. Why? Okay, so so part of it is that there's um, a whole lot. I mean, the word vanity in the title. Um, means has the full range of meaning that vanity has. It's the Ecclesiastes um, range of meanings. Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Vanity comes from a word which means emptiness. Um, so people who are vain, if, if someone shows a lot of vanity, it means they show a lot of pride over nothing. They're showing pride over things that don't matter. That's what vanity would be. Um, and but that's that's it's the nothingness that matters. The vanity of human wishes means um, that it's that you may wish for things, but your wishing is empty. It can't do anything. Whatever you wish for um, is a sign of your belief, your vanity that you're important, but also the emptiness of trying to think that you can get anything by um, by wishing for something as a human being. Yeah. What was that last line you just said? The vanity is striving after wind? Yeah, that's Ecclesiastes. Oh. So it's, you know, that's where the sun also rises comes from. Um, so it's the book of the Bible um, that's supposedly by Solomon, and um, it basically begins, there's a little introduc introductory verse, but it basically begins, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Well, it's the words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. So the preacher, because he's the son of David and king in Jerusalem, is supposed to be King Solomon. And it be, So it's the words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Um, so that's what human life is. 
And Johnson wants you to be remembering that. That is the word vanity in his title. Um, he certainly wants you to be remembering Ecclesiastes and that very famous opening of Ecclesiastes. Um, what would you compare, what have we read before that's most like the vanity of human wishes? You said essay and criticism. What else? Well, in some ways, it's, it's, well, can you say more? Um, the parts about the politics and politicians, uh-huh. very terrible. Yeah. Yeah, so in, a, in some ways, it's like Absalom and Kittafel because it's about um, what people will do to get power. And um, the, um, the wrongness of believing that you can trust anyone in power, that if you lead a political life, for example, um, you can find some kind of achievement, you can achieve there some kind of security um, because there is no security in political, in political power. Um, people like you until you're out of favor and then they don't like you. The very same people um, who... Um, If you go to, is this the, um, no, that's not the one. Uh, yeah, go to line um, 70 or 69. So he brings in Democritus, who's known um, famously as the laughing philosopher. Um, Democritus is the first person um, to come up with the idea of atoms. He's, a, he's an ancient Greek philosopher, and um, the doctrine that matter is made of atoms, that was Democritus's idea originally, um, and uh, later forgotten, and then uh, Lucretius picks it up, but it's later forgotten, but then Dalton, at the end of the 18th century, um, returns to the atomic theory of matter. But Democritus was known as the laughing philosopher. Um, he laughed at everything. That was, he was famous for that. Um, and Johnson is saying, or, or imitating Juvenal saying, um, Democritus laughed at a society where everyone had to work really hard to live, and he still thought they were ridiculous with their pretensions and vanities. Imagine how he would laugh now at our society, which is so much more ridiculous than his. Um, so he says if Democritus were to come now, he would... Um, he would just be full of mirth. And then he goes on at 69, such was the scorn that filled the sage's mind, renewed at every glance on humankind. How just that scorn ere yet thy voice declare, search every state and canvas every prayer. So if you want to, if, before you, before you um, express your scorn for modern times, just look and this is a kind of the end of the introduction to the poem. Look at what people are like now. That's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to consider, we're going to search every state and canvas every prayer, what, it, what everyone wants. And so here's the first one. And this is maybe one of those abstractions, Liz, that you found um, that might contribute to your sense of a lot of words. 
unnumbered suppliants crowd preferments gate, a thirst for wealth and burning to be great. So what would preferments gate be? The house of somebody that could do favors for you. Yeah. Um, that is preferment would it actually means something like political patronage. Um, it's all the people who apply for jobs who are applying for jobs in John um, Boehner's office now. Um, it's all the people who applied for jobs when Obama won. It's um, you have power, give me some. Um, I supplicate. I will work really hard for you. A numbered suppliant's crowd preferment's gate. A thirst for wealth and burning to be great. Delusive fortune hears the incessant call. They mount, they shine, evaporate and fall. So that's almost Popian compression there for what political life is like, especially if you're a political brown noser. Um, so you try to get a job with a politician who's in, um, you, you crowd performance gate, you have good fortune, but it's fortune, so it's just pure luck. And so people, they mount, they shine, evaporate, and fall. On every stage, the foes of peace attend. So wherever you get to in politics, in trying to curry political favor, you'll never find peace. Any stage you get to, you will find the foes of peace, people who are not letting you just have that job and do okay, but the foes of peace are everywhere. So on every stage, the foes of peace attend. They're waiting for you. Um, hate dogs their flight, and insult mocks their end. Um, so everywhere you get to, um, you will be dogged by hate, and when you finally lose power, you'll simply be insulted. And then when hope ends, so does love. Love ends with hope. The, sink, the sinking statesman's door pours in the morning worshiper no more. So if you're out of power, if you're no longer the rising powerful figure, if you're now a sinking statesman, thank goodness these things no longer happen. The people who seem to be the one stop seeming to be the one. But once that starts happening, um, the sinking statesman's door pours in the morning worshiper no more. People are no longer rushing and lining up to flatter and try to get something for their flattery. Um, for growing names, the weekly scribbler lies. That is, um, newspapers are interested in people who are on the rise, people who are rising stars. Um, the Times had an article yesterday about how Rubio in Florida seems to be a rising star in the GOP, whereas no one's writing at all about Romney. Um, so for growing names, the weekly scribbler lies. To growing wealth, the dedicator flies. Um, dedicator of what? Book or poem. Yeah, of poems of praise. You go to someone who's getting richer, um, and you cultivate them. To growing wealth, the dedicator flies. From every room descends the painted face that hung the bright palladium of the place. So portraits of important people, um, you know, there's, I think there's a portrait, there's a lot of portraits of ex-Brandeis presidents down in the Board of Trustees room um, in Bernstein Marcus. Um, Yehuda's portrait will be there soon. Um, so, from every room descends the painted face that hung the bright palladium of the place, so portraits of important people are taken down. 
they're no longer the thing that everyone um, worships and pays attention to. And they're brought, they're just shoved in the kitchen as a place to put them and smoked in kitchens or in auctions sold to better features yields the frame of gold. And the gold frame around that portrait now goes to whoever's in power now um, frames the portrait of the new person in power. For now, no more we trace in every line heroic worth, benevolence divine. The form distorted justifies the fall and detestation rids the indignant wall. So you take the portrait down. The very fact that now you're rolling it up means that you no longer see a face which is supposed to be a face of wisdom and power. It's all getting distorted by being rolled up. And everyone says, yeah, obviously that's not an important person. So I think you're right that that's like Dryden's complaint in Absalom and Achitophel, um, that um, a complaint against democracy, complaint that um, the way people get power is by distorting um, what those who are right and just, um, claiming that David is poor and weak and doesn't know what he's doing, um, claiming that people have um, a, a right to put someone who's really good up, but it's all change. It's all can't, as Johnson says, says um, in an anecdote that Boswell um, tells, and it's all change. It's not worth, it's not virtue, it's not desert that gives people power, um, but it's um, uh, just uh, change of change of political party, change of um, situation, change of fortune, change of public opinion. Um, so in that way, yeah, it's a lot like Aslam and Akitafel. That's the political part of this, but this poem doesn't by any means simply confine itself to the political. Um, what else? Yeah. Say more. Yeah. The other one, um, who was it? Rochester. Um, you know, he talks about like how like we like go for our instincts and everything, and he kind of like going off the same. I think that's absolutely right. Um, it's a whole lot unexpectedly, especially given Johnson's distaste for Rochester, um, which we talked about a little bit in class. It's unexpectedly like Rochester in um, its bitterness and its mis in its um, not quite misanthropy, but its despair over the possibility of any sort of um, human way of life that would um, not turn out to be an example of vanity. Um, Rochester gives, yeah. Well, I think Rochester came out of this by saying, go out and have a good time. Yeah. Whereas um, here we, uh, Johnson says, well, this is all true, but you know, go to church and be, be good and moral. Yeah. So Johnson, ha the end that Johnson has in this poem, and, and the ending is really um, what you need to think about um, as whether this is an example of vanity or not. So um, again, what, what I should say about Johnson is, um, in a sense, of all the figures that we're doing, he's the one whose real life psychology, it's partly because we know his real life psychology, 
but he's the one who's most um, transparent in his work of the people we've done so far, transparent in his work um, about himself. That is, when you read Pope, when you read Dryden, when you read, even when you read Rochester, um, what you're reading are people who are using um, their poetic power as a tool to say what they want to say. Now, it's not that what they want to say is somehow not important to them. They wouldn't be saying it unless it were important to them. When Dryden and Religio Laici, um, or in The Hind and the Panther, which you unaccountably didn't want to do, um, uh, talks about his religious convictions, they are his religious convictions. Um, but they are also um, people who are writing for various purposes. Um, Pope, in his funny poems, is attacking people who attack him. Um, the letter to Dr. Arbuthnot is Pope, in a sense, talking about himself autobiographically at some length, but also justifying himself and justifying the kind of person he is in the world. Dryden's great poems are political interventions or philosophical um, reflections, but what, however we think of Dryden and Pope, um, as, or even Swift, as people, um, we're also, we can also feel very strongly um, that they're aware of an audience. And the audience that they're aware of is an audience that is particular in certain ways. They're writing, in thinking about any of them, you have to think about who their readers are. Um, there's nothing unusual about this. Um, we're part of what it means. Reading is always reading over someone's shoulder. Um, there's no reading. I, this is I, I, I claim this very, very, very strongly. No literary reading um, doesn't take place over someone's shoulder. Um, you're reading something that was not written for you, even if it says it was written for you. Um, it was written at most and at best for an idealized idea that the author has for who the reader should be. And that idea is an idea that you have to know the author's culture, even if it's only slightly different from yours, you have to know the author's culture to know what that idea is. If you're, you know, you have to um, decide, for example, um, the gender, I mean, just not to sound PC, but the gender, the race, the class, and so on, um, of who it is the author imagines as a reader. Um, and the odds that you are going to fit into what the reader is are very, very, very low. Even if you do, it's simply the nature of reading um, that you're reading vicariously, as I would call it. Um, you're imagining what it would be like for someone um, for you imagine what it'd be like to be the actual person the author is addressing, and you never are that actual person. If someone writes you a letter, you are, maybe. Actually, I don't think you are even then. Um, but if someone writes you a letter, you might be. But whenever you read a work of literature, you're not. One thing you're doing is reading something that um, has been read before by someone else. Um, otherwise, it wouldn't be published. Um, or that's constructed to be read as a work that has been read before. 
Uh, we don't have to go into this, but this is a this is a subtle but important point in um, in the theory of narrative. Um, so what that means is when we read Pope or Dryden or Swift or Rochester, um, we have pretty a pretty strong sense of the kind of person that they're writing for, and they want us to have a strong sense of the kind of person they're writing for. Um, none of them is saying, um, uh, this is what I would say to anyone. What they're all saying is, this is what I'm saying to someone like X, and X is called you, someone like you, but someone like X, who very rightly and intelligently thinks, thinks the kinds of things you should think. Um, in Johnson, there's very little of that. In Johnson, there's, it's much, much harder to write a kind of quasi-biography of his reader than it is in anyone else. It's not hard to write a quasi-biography of Pope. That person will be very learned and very funny um, and pretty energetically angry at, um, at um, all the... Um, uh, all the time serving and bootlicking of people in power and so on. Um, it's not hard to see who Dryden is writing for um, and to construct a quasi-biography of Dryden's reader in any work. Um, really not hard to see who Swift is writing for, although sometimes it can be, who he's writing for can be highly ironized. That is, sure, I'm writing for people who think it is a good idea to eat babies. Um, but then what he's doing is he's writing for people who are going to be shocked that it's so obvious that there are a lot of people who think it's a good idea to eat babies. Johnson is doing something that, that is much more like the kind of literature that pretty much begins with romanticism, which is it's a much more confessional mode than um, what we're used to so far. Johnson isn't asking you to construct a reader, to think about um, who he must be saying this to. In that sense, he's kind of transparent and expressive and honest in his writing. He's describing how he feels rather than arguing with someone and against someone else for taking a certain attitude or for taking a stand against that attitude. That's what Boswell liked so much about him. Boswell said, I just want to hang out with him in order to hear what he thinks, not in order for him to start telling me how I should live my life, although Johnson did that plenty, um, but to hear what he thinks. Johnson um, in Rasselas, which is where he talks about celibacy and marriage, um, Johnson in no, actually, it's not in Rasselas. It's in a Rambler. But Johnson and Rasselas, Johnson wrote one work of fiction, Rasselas, which he wrote in a week, this is typical of Johnson, in order to pay for his mother's funeral. Um, so his mother died. He couldn't pay for her funeral. So he wrote a novel, um, National Novel Writing Week, um, Rasselas, um, and, um, and paid for her funeral that way. And it's um, one of the great, I mean, not absolutely great works of fiction, but a work of, an indispensable work of fiction in um, the history of, of English literature. Um, 
and um, he he was always able to do that sort of thing. But the major thing that his major writing are his essays, and those essays are essays in which he talks about human experience, and he talks about human experience um, from the point of view of any human. He's not trying to convince you of anything except to see things truly and clearly. Um, and if you see things truly and clearly, you're going to see that life is actually pretty hard and that trying to believe that it's not pretty hard is lying to yourself. Um, Rasselas, I'm sorry, the reason I brought up Rasselas is because there's a chapter in Rasselas, there's a mad astronomer in Rasselas. Um, and um, the guide, Rasselas' guide, um, who's explaining the people that they're meeting as they go on their various journeys, um, explains the astronomer who thinks that he has to go up to his tower to look at the sky every day, otherwise um, astronomy will cease, the, the sun will fall out of the sky, terrible things will happen. He seems very reasonable until he, get, until he says this idea. Um, uh, Rasselas' guide, Rasselas is a prince of Ethiopia, and his guide um, explains this as an example of what he calls the dangerous prevalency of imagination. That's the famous phrase, the dangerous prevalency of imagination. And the idea is that your mind can run away with you unless you are thinking really hard all the time. Um, you can easily go crazy. Johnson always was worried that he was going to lose his mind. Um, a few months before he died, he had a stroke, and he describes it um, in a letter. Um, and um, he says, um, and it's something that you can see him already worrying about. That's like the worst thing that could happen to him. Um, he's already worrying about it when he talks about Marlboro and about Swift and the vanity of human wishes. Swift seems to have had Alzheimer's um, and to have really lost it for the last three or four years of his life. Um, and um, when Johnson had a stroke, he describes it. He says he, he woke up, he was paralyzed, he didn't know what to do, and he immediately prayed. And his prayer was, let not my understanding be affected. Um, and then in order to test whether his brain was still functioning intellectually, um, he composed an ode in Greek while he lay there kind of paralyzed on his bed. And he said... It wasn't very good, but that didn't worry me because I could tell it wasn't very good, and it was probably as good as I could have done even if I hadn't had a stroke. Um, so, um, so he was grateful for that, but that was, his, that was his great fear that something would happen to his understanding, um, understanding meaning his capacity to think clearly, to, to be able to think clearly. Because for Johnson... Um, what he does is he thinks about human experience as a whole in a way that the writers we've been looking at so far, so far sometimes do, but mainly don't. Mainly they're interested in particular people, um, whether they're attacking them, whether they're defending them, whether they're impersonating them, whether they're um, eulogizing them. Um, the great glory of what we've been reading so far is the variety of the human comedy, you could call it. But for Johnson, we're entering into um, a later mode of literature, which is a general account of human experience. 
And the vanity of human wishes, it's not, you know, the vanity of the wishes of the rich or the vanity of the wishes of the um, powerful or the vanity of the wishes of the wise. Um, it's the vanity of all human wishes. So when you get to the end of the poem, um, where he says, so the only thing you can really do is put yourself in God's hands because he really knows. Um, he, no one else but God could know. I've just shown that. Even if you live a very virtuous life, um, and you don't take drugs, and you don't drink, and you don't um, have sex with people um, at all, and you don't um, dissipate yourself, um, things can still go to hell from one second to the next. And even if um, you live really well, for example, well, this is line um, 299, yet even this, yet even on this her load, misfortune flings to press the weary minutes flagging wings. New sorrow rises as the day returns, a sister sickens, or a daughter mourns. That is, your daughter loses a child. Um, now kindred merit fills the sable beer. Now lacerated friendship claims a tear. Year chases year, decay pursues decay, still drops some joy from withering life away. New forms arise in different views engaged, superfluous lags the veteran on the stage. And then it's below that that you hear about from Marlborough's eyes the streams of dotage flow and Swift expires, a driveler and a show. Um, Swift had just died when he wrote this. Um, so even Swift, who's amazing, we saw how amazing he is, um, he has this terrible last few years of, of raving madness, driveling, um, driveling um, dementia. Um, so even if you do everything right, he's saying, that doesn't give you anything. So finally, at the very end, he says, so you have to resign yourself to God. Um, pray and hope that hope for the best and hope that God will treat you well. And the real question about Johnson is, is this a firm belief or is this a desperate makeshift? Does he actually, is he saying, look, what I'm going to do in this poem, I mean, I'm going to tell you the answer, the answer is no, but is he saying, what I'm going to do in this poem is show that you have no choice but to put yourself in God's hands? Um, no, that's not the purpose of the poem. That's the result of the poem. It's, it's as though the only hope at all, now that I see that there's no hope, the only hope at all is that maybe there is a God. Because otherwise, there's nothing. And it's not triumphant. You know, most people who say you have to trust in God, proselytizing is triumphant. That is, and if you believe in God, you'll see how much better you feel about things. Johnson doesn't feel better. What he's hoping is maybe there's that, because really there's nothing else. Um, that's Johnson in his darkest, most melancholy moods, and they're frequent in him. Um, okay, so Thompson and Collins for Tuesday. Um, so I think if you handed them in, as I say, I think they're here. Um, and I am about to email uh, the comments on the people who didn't get me paper copies for one reason or another.